All right. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's open our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us to worship you, to rest in you. And Lord, as we consider uh, the vows two and three today uh, and, and this theme of, of rest, Lord, I thank you that most, most of all, though we do get to enjoy physical rest and you command us to set aside our labors and to, to focus on you, and yet this physical rest points us uh, and gives us opportunity to meditate most especially on the spiritual rest that we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would receive and rest uh, in his work, that we would, that we would be moved to, to gratitude as we come to worship you uh, this morning. And now, Lord, as we consider these vows and, and your word, I pray that you would give us wisdom in your spirit and that you would help the, the words of my mouth to be edifying and glorifying to you, and that uh, you would help those here to, uh, to, to hear well and to uh, test everything they hear against, against your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to have you all again. Um, <clears throat> I say again, not because it's because I've taught this one with you all before. But we're continuing on in our examination of, of the vows. So last week, um, Joe Fowler went through vow number one, um, which is on our, our, our sinful estate, uh, our, our sinful condition. And today we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at both vows two and three. So if you have the, if you need a handout, do you want another one? Mark, would you hand that back, back to them? <coughs> So briefly, before we begin looking at our vows, <coughs> um, something I've been struck by as I'm re-examining re the vows uh, uh, that we have is there's, there's a beauty to these, uh, these vows. There's a beauty to the story and the progression that we get uh, with, with these vows. So to, to kind of briefly summarize, the story is, uh, is vow one, we're confessing that we're, we're sinners. We have a, a major problem. Uh, and then vow two is, is the but God moment. Uh, it's but, but God being rich in mercy. But Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, is the savior of sinners. And, uh, and, and therefore I have hope. And then vow three, because of what Jesus has done for me, how can I do anything but respond to him in obedience and following him? And then vow four, because I want to love Jesus Christ and obey him, I want to love his people. I want to love his bride. I want to be committed to his church. And then vow five is, well, because I love his bride, because I love his church, and he has set officers in that church uh, to, to, to lead and to guide, well, out of love for Jesus, I'm going to submit myself to those, to those officers, and I'm going to, to seek the betterment of that church, the betterment of his bride. But all throughout these vows, it's focused on Jesus. This is, this is, not, uh, this is not the, the types of, of vows where you're, you're committing just to a club or to a group of, of, 
people, even when we get to vow five, it's not ultimately about the, the men before you as officers. It's about love for Christ. It's about trusting in Jesus. But getting ahead of ourselves there. But I, want, I just wanted you to think about the story of these vows. They're not in abstract. There's a logical progression. Uh, furthermore, we see, we see a, a parallel with what you may have heard of as the gospel grammar. Has anyone heard that term, gospel grammar? So Paul regularly talks about indicatives, meaning he's stating truths about what Jesus has done for us. He's stating truths about who God is. And those lead to imperatives. Now, therefore, live like this. So vow one and two, these are, these are indicatives. This is telling us we're sinners and Jesus has saved us. And then we're moving to the imperatives in three, four, and five. So we see a parallel with that gospel grammar. So as we, as we begin with, uh, with vow two, um, the first vow ensures that we understand the problem. We have a sin problem. We have an original sin problem, and we have an, what the, the confession calls an actual sin. We have original sin and actual sin, meaning actual sins being the things that we commit ourselves. Uh, and so those, those sins flow from our corrupt nature, our original sin. And so vow one is ensuring that we understand that as we go into, as we go into uh, uh, vow two, we have to understand what the problem is. And so now vow two ensures in succinct terms uh, that we understand the reason for the hope that is in us. So I'm going to read vow two. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? So we're going to look at each verse, uh, each phrase of this vow uh, individually. So the first is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God? In order for there to be hope of salvation, we have to be clear about who Jesus is. We need to be clear about his identity. And the early church had a lot of uh, controversy over this question. There was a lot of actual blood and ink spilt on the identity of who Jesus is. And in fact, the Nicene Creed that, uh, that we uh, confess uh, on rotation uh, in, in, in worship, the Nicene Creed is a product of just such a controversy with uh, a, a sect, a ultimately heretical sect known as the Arians, who said that Jesus, Jesus is, yes, the Son of God, but God made him. God created him in time. And so, therefore, if, if God creates Jesus, is, is Jesus co-equal with God? Is Jesus co-equal with the Father? No, he can't be co-equal with the Father if, if the Father made Jesus in, in time. And the, the, the descendants of Arianism today would be multiple, but notably the Jehovah's Witness. So if you get into a conversation with Jehovah's Witness, they'll try to tell you that Jesus is a created being that was elevated to the position of Son of God, as though it's a, a, a title. Um, 
So anyhow, the Nicene Creed was, was a product of the church wrestling with that very issue. And so as a result, we have beautiful statements in the Nicene Creed about who Jesus is. God of God, this is speaking of Jesus, God of God, light of light, which echoes John 1, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Now, it's important for us to remember as we approach creeds and confessions that they're not inventing something for us. Christians were not at a complete loss to understand the identity of Jesus until the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Council, clarified it. How do we know that? Well, the Bible, the Bible speaks clearly to Jesus' identity. If we read uh, Romans 10, verse 9, I'm just going to turn there. Romans 10, verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. The word used there, now I'm going to clarify, I'm going to caveat this. I am not a, a Greek scholar, so, uh, so just bear with me, but the, I do know this. The Greek word there is kyrios, which is the word most frequently used to translate the Old Testament term Yahweh. So uh, is anyone familiar with the Septuagint? Septuagint. So the Septuagint, the, the Septuagint is uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Uh, the, the translation of that into Greek was called the Septuagint, and the word they used to translate Yahweh is Kyrios. Um, uh, I heard it's something like 66,000 or 60,000 times. It's some massive number of times that that word is used. So when Paul is saying Jesus is Lord, he's not just saying he's uh, Lord something so the Duke of Burgundy. I don't know, made up name. He's saying, no, no, this is, this is the covenant-keeping God. This is the creator of the universe. Um, we, we also see this truth evident in John's gospel. Again, the Nicene Creed clarifies what the Bible is already clearly saying. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was kind of like God. No. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. So John is right in, in the very first verse of his gospel, making sure we understand who Jesus is. And then much of the gospel of John goes on to hammer that point home. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So understanding that Jesus is truly God is crucial to the next phrase, and Savior of sinners. He's the savior of sinners. God alone can be savior of sinners. If Jesus is not God, then he cannot be our savior. And the Pharisees, interestingly, the Pharisees knew this in his day. The Pharisees knew this. They, uh, in, the, in the passage on, you, you remember the, the man uh, who, is, who is lame and on his mat, and, and he's, his friends lower him down through the roof, uh, and, and he tells, tells him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? Jesus doesn't argue their point. 
who can forgive sins but, but God? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So God alone has authority to forgive sins. And Jesus is saying, you're right. And I am he. I am, I am God, and I have authority on earth. So because Jesus Christ is the Lord and Son of God, therefore, he's able to be the Savior of sinners. In fact, this is why he became man. This is why he dwelt among us. Jesus is the Redeemer, the long-expected Messiah promised in Genesis 3.15. We see this clearly prophesied in Isaiah. Um, uh, and as a matter of fact, if you'll turn with me, if you have a Bible in front of you, please turn with me to Isaiah 53. This is one of the, the servant songs. And we're going to start in verse 4. Okay, listen carefully to this and, and know that this is Jesus that's being prophesied. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see Isaiah prophesying of Jesus' purpose? Jesus didn't come... I don't know what else. Like, he didn't just come for kicks uh, or, or maybe like the Greek gods just to, to, to uh, come and, and walk around among humans to see what they're up to. No, he came with a purpose. And what was that purpose? The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He came to be crushed for our iniquities. He came with a, a set purpose. And Jesus knew this. Jesus said this of himself. He says in Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came, some of you might know this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus is very clear on his identity. He is the Son of God. Uh, there are other statements in John where he, <laughs> he, he uses the phrase, I am, which for, for the, the, the Jews would have immediately hearkened them back to Moses at the bush when he's speaking with God himself, with speaking with Yahweh. And Jesus is saying, I am he. So Jesus is clear on his identity, and he's clear on his purpose, his work. Uh, listen to the beautiful words from our, our, our shorter catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is question 20 and then question 21. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? This is the question we have after vow one. If we just stopped at vow one, that'd be awful. 
So did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. It's, it's, like, it's, like in a, it's like in a great story where you just get these little hints of something to come. That's the, that's the beautiful uh, thing about Genesis as well. Question 21. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? The redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal son of God, became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. There's a lot in there that we're not going to unpack but that first phrase is what we really want to focus on. The, re- the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, can there be any other redeemer but God? No. Uh, God alone has the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus, uh, so this vow is ensuring that we understand the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God and, praise be to God, the Savior of sinners. This first half of the, of the vow is, is reminiscent of Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Jesus is asking who people say he is. And, and they, give, they start to tell him the talk of the town. Well, some say Elijah. Uh, some say, I can't remember some of the other names offhand, but they're, 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 it's all speculation and all wrong. <laughs> and then Jesus turns the spotlight onto his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? To which Peter Peter boldly replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The first part of this vow is joining our voices with with Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we've stated who uh, who we believe Jesus to be, uh, and now we come to the second half of, of this vow. And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered in the gospel. So this final, this final half of the vow uh, takes the, the surgical knife and probes deeper. The first, we're, we're probing into what do we believe. The second is, now what are you doing with this? Do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? What a thing to have in our vow receive and rest. It's almost like you want to take a moment and just sigh with, with joy and, and peace that, that we, can, we can rest. We can lay down all of, our, all of our, our, our filthy attempts at earning righteousness and we can, we can rest. It's, it's maybe reminiscent in human relationship where you might you might have had times where someone that you love most, you're at, disagree- you're at odds with, and you're fighting, and you're striving, and at some point, hopefully in God's mercy, the, the, the clouds start to break, and there's this moment of, you know, I don't know what to tell you other than I love you, or, or that happens in reverse, and there's, there's this opportunity just to, okay, rest. Well, that's what Jesus is, uh, that's what we're, we're saying here. Do we receive and rest upon him alone for our salvation? 
So we're not only saying that Jesus is the Lord. In receiving him, we're saying Jesus is my Lord. We need to make this personal. It's easy to spew off facts, but we need to make this personal. Jesus is my Lord. I am his and he is mine. We're receiving him as our friend, Luke 7, 34. Our brother, Hebrews 2, verse 11. Our Lord, John 20, verse 28. We're resting in him alone as our Savior, because as we've established, salvation can only come from God. Um, I won't read the entire thing, but the chapter in the Westminster Confession on saving faith is so beautiful. Uh, It's chapter 14, if you want to read it, uh, but there's a the, the final sentence in paragraph two, it, it, it's describing how faith interacts with God's word. And then it says, but the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for, the justi- for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So that first half of the vow is, is reminiscent of Peter's confession in Matthew 16. This half of the vow is joining our voices with him in John 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed, uh, walked after with him. Excuse me. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's, that's, our, that's our cry in this, uh, in this second half. Lord, to whom shall we go? What other rest do I have? What else do I have to receive but Jesus alone? There, there is nothing. The, 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 the Reformation cry of solos Christus, Christ alone, isn't, we're Christ alone amidst all sorts of other valid options. It's Christ alone because there's nothing else. There are ideas, but there's nothing else that you can actually root in. So, briefly, how do we break this vow? If we're taking vows, we should be careful not to break them, and we should understand how we ought not to break them. So how does one break this vow? We would break this vow if we do not confess Jesus Christ as Lord, if we do not confess him to be the Son of God, uh, if, we, if, we cannot, if we cannot receive uh, the, the Nicene Creed, that he is very God of very God, if we cannot read John 1 at face value and say he is God, then, then we would be breaking this vow. We would break this vow if we believe Jesus to be merely a good example of sacrificial love. If, he's just, if his work on the cross was just to show us what, what it looks like to love our friends, and that's it, then we gut Jesus of having any power, of any efficacy, and we would thereby break that vow. Uh, if you get a chance to listen to the Sunday school upstairs, they're dealing with a lot of that issue, of people who, who wanted to say, Jesus is a beautiful example. He is, but he's also Lord, and he's the Savior of sinners. Furthermore, we break this vow anytime we try to add anything to the work of Christ. When we say, Jesus' death somehow enables me to, to get here, and now I have, like, I have to drum it up in myself to, to go the rest of the way. 
I'm, uh, or I'm going to work with Jesus and, and somehow uh, uh, atone for my sins. No, Jesus, what does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. And so it is. That's, that's Christ alone. Um, I would encourage you to read Galatians uh, in relation to this. Uh, Paul's dealing with grief and frustration as the Galatians are turning from this core doctrine. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. That gets to the part of the vow where it's uh, as he is offered in the gospel. Not that there is another one, but that but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 21, he says, If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There's a lot at stake there. If we say we can attain righteousness ourselves, Jesus died for nothing. He uses strong language in chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let us not be bewitched by doctrine that would say we need to add our works to Jesus. How does one keep this vow? We keep this vow when we worship Jesus as Lord of creation, as the eternally begotten Son of God, when we worship him as he is fully due with all honor, all praise, all glory. We keep this vow when we offer sacrifice of thanksgiving for the salvation which he has worked. We keep this vow by recognizing our utter helplessness apart from Christ, and resting on him alone. You can keep this vow before you've even made it as we go up to worship today. So now we turn to following Jesus. Again, this is, we're moving from indicatives to imperatives. If this is true, if one is true and two is true, then three has to be the logical necessity. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as become the followers of Christ. We're repeatedly told by Jesus himself that we're to be followers of him. Uh, Luke 8, we read, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. John 12, 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's just two out of many more. I, I pulled four, thinking I was going to just do a few, and then I condensed it further. Point being, Jesus repeatedly tells us where to be followers of Christ. So vow three isn't binding us to do anything that Jesus himself has not commanded. This is not a concept that, uh, that people came up with. Oh, it's a good idea. Let's have people vow to to follow Jesus. No, 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 Jesus tells us this. But what does it mean uh, to, in the phrasing of, of our vow, to endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Uh, we're going to look at two passages to, uh, to, to help unpack this. So if you'll turn with me to Romans 8. Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. And then you're going to keep what we read, keep a, a thumb or a finger, a digit of some variety in, uh, in Romans 8. And then we're going to turn to 1 John 3. But let's read Romans 12 and 13 first. 
So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, keep a thumb there, and then turn over to 1 John chapter 3. It's all the way at the end, right before uh, Revelation. I'm used to a single-column Bible, so I'm regularly, like, way overshooting the passages I'm looking for. All right, so 1 John chapter 3. This is a slightly longer uh, passage, so just listen closely. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. There again, we get a purpose statement. He appeared in order to take away sins. And in him... There is no sin. No one, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has uh, either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay. So Romans 8, uh, uh, verse 12, Paul tells us that we are debtors to Christ. In other other passages, we are called uh, slaves or bondservants to Christ. Because at the end of the day, we're always slaves. Now, our our culture doesn't want us to think that. uh, It's not just our culture. The world, the flesh, and the devil doesn't want us to think that we're slaves. We're free. We're independent agents. We can... We can make our path in life. Uh, I'm the, there's a famous poem that talks about I'm the captain of my ship. No, actually, the Bible tells us quite differently. You're always a slave of something, either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Paul tells us this in, in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, uh, there's a longer discussion on this, but to read a, a short passage. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There are two paths. You can be a a servant or a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. And quick note there, when we follow our own path, we're deceiving ourselves and thinking it's we're the captain of our ship. Because in fact, we are presenting ourselves to our own flesh as, uh, as, as obedient slaves. So in chapter 8, Paul is saying that, we are, that being debtors to the flesh is utterly absurd. He says, uh, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. What has the flesh done for us? He asks that in another place. What, what, what did your former ways ever do for you, other than cause shame, other than cause regret? However, God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So to whom are we actually, who did something worthwhile for us? The flesh? No. God. Yes. So we, we're debtors to God. We're debtors to Christ. 
And there's a great danger if we do not live as debtors to Christ. For if you live according to the flesh, this is Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And this isn't, this isn't death that draws us closer to Christ because we're in heaven. This is, this is death that forever separates us from God. Our passage in John, uh, 1 John continues this thought. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Jesus tells the Pharisees this. He says, your father is the devil because he is the father of lies. John says that the whole point of Jesus' appearance was to, quote, destroy the works of the devil. So if the whole point of Jesus coming to die was to destroy the works of the devil, how can we continue pretending to be followers of Jesus while in fact being children of the devil, as John says later in that passage? There are false teachers that John recognizes in his day and in our day that would would want us to think you can have it all. You can have the blessings of being in Jesus. You can have prosperity. You can have a happier family. You can have success in your job. You can live to your full potential and, and you can go your way, but just, you know, just follow Jesus as well, whatever that means. No, the there's only taking up your cross and following Jesus. If you, want, if you want eternal life, Jesus is the only way. Um, now, that's not to say that we don't have earthly blessings in this life. We certainly do. But those are, those are the, the result of following Jesus. Those are the, uh, the, the side effects, if you will. So John is telling us, uh, John's also not telling us, by the way, that we can live a perfectly sinless life. Uh, it, it says... Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Some, some have argued in the church that, well, in fact, we can attain perfection here on earth. But John says uh, in a, another place in his letters, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John's not, John's not a, a, a perfectionist, an idealist, who's saying that this side of heaven, we're going to be sinless. No, he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So he's telling us that, uh, that he's, he's wanting us to ask ourselves the question of, what are we practicing? What are we pursuing? And to the point of our vow, who are we following? The devil or are we following Jesus? And then says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Our actions aren't what make us children of God or make us children of, of the devil. It's, it's evidencing what is already true. Are we following after righteousness and therefore children of God? Um, or are we uh, following after the flesh? But following Jesus isn't only about putting sin to death. Uh, there's this principle throughout scripture of putting off and putting on. So we put off the deeds of the flesh, and we put on the deeds of righteousness. So Ephesians 2, verses 9 through 11, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So God's prepared good works for us to do. We're to put off uh, our, our selfish desires and put on the desire to serve, desire to, to, to love God's people. First uh, John 3 goes on in verse 11 uh, till the end of, of that passage uh, to talk about the love that we should have for one another. And just a quick aside, that's what that's intimately connected with vows uh, four and five. Uh, extremely important to this vow, though, is the means of how we keep this vow. Notice the phrasing. I don't, I don't have it in front of me right there. Notice the phrasing. Do you resolve and promise in humble reliance on the, Holy, on the grace of the Holy Spirit? So we're not saying, okay, God justifi- Jesus justifies you, and then good luck on sanctification, hope to see you in heaven. No, it's grace all the way through. So, how do we do this? Well, if we, if we return to Romans 8, verse 13. Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul's saying that the means of our putting to death the deeds of the body is the Spirit himself. Galatians uh, also echoes this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's the Spirit working in us that allows us to turn away from uh, our own sinful desires. Okay, so how do we break this vow? We break this vow when we cherish secret sin in our own hearts and refuse to turn from it. This is incredibly convicting to think about. In many ways, we, we are all vow breakers. We, we all, on the, on the road to sanctification, we are continually breaking this vow. But are we practicing righteousness? Are we continually turning and returning to the finished work of Jesus to atone for our sins? Or are we cherishing it, guarding it? As we listen to the sermon, we suddenly hear something that makes us uncomfortable because, well, that's my, that's my pet. That's my pet sin. Don't touch that. No, no, we, 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 should, we should long for that to be exposed. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts lest there be any unclean way in me, as, as the psalmist says. Um, we break this vow when we hear his word, as I already said, find it opposed to something in our lives and refuse to obey it. I know that that's what the Bible says, but, but that just doesn't fit with our times. Uh, that's a little antiquated. No, it doesn't matter how antiquated it might seem. If Jesus tells us to go this way, we go that way. I remember talking to a friend once that was was arguing for it being okay to do things not according to God's word specifically. I was like, how can you, that would be like me talking to Mark and saying, I love everything that Mark says. And then I go on to tell you precisely what Mark didn't say. No, no, I love Mark. I love Mark and everything he says, but I just don't listen to him. No. 
We also break this vow when we do not love his people because we're commanded to love his people, as, as John talks about later in the passage we read. Okay, how do we keep this vow? We keep this vow by loving and worshiping God. We keep this vow by serving God wherever he leads us, not being Jonah's. Uh, and that, that might not be preaching. It might be any number of areas of your life. We keep this vow by joyfully returning to God all that he has given us, ourselves, our time, and our possessions. We keep this vow by keep taking every thought captive, every word and deed captive to Christ. And we keep this vow by loving his people and his word. All right, in conclusion, Jesus' words in Matthew 11, I believe, beautifully tie these two vows together for us. Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden. That's vow one. And I will give you rest. That's vow two. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's vow three. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And we're back to vow two. All right. Uh, unfortunately, I'm so sorry, we don't have time for questions. If you have questions, though, please don't hesitate to ask. Um, you can ask me right afterwards, or you can ask any of the elders after the service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that your word is sufficient. Uh, we, we thank you that we have creeds and confessions and, and statements about uh, your word, about doctrine, about who you are, and yet all of these draw from, not just draw from, find their, their source in your word. We thank you that we can go to your word, and it is, uh, it is, it is clear if we have your spirit and we interpret your word with your word, we can see clearly who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what that means and requires of us in response. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to continually rest upon Jesus. Lord, would you strengthen us by your Spirit to follow after him, to put to death our own fleshly desires, and to long to practice righteousness, that we may be slaves of righteousness, that we may find our true freedom as we find ourselves as willing and eager servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.